This is episode 191 with Dr. Nick Holton and Dr. Adam Wright. Welcome to Forever Athlete Radio, where together we go far. Today, I am joined by two of the best in the business when it comes to mental performance. Dr. Nick Holton, who specializes in human flourishing and optimal functioning, and Dr. Adam Wright, who specializes in guiding elite performers towards pushing their boundaries of what is known as their potential. Adam is the director of mental performance for the Washington Nationals, Go Nats. While Nick is the co-director of Human Flourishing at the Shipley School. Together, they founded what is known as the Anti-Fragile Athlete, a term that we're going to explore a little bit more in depth today. But their startup is focused on flourishing in athletes of all ages, making mental performance training as accessible as possible. Today, we dive into solutions on how to make mental health resources a little bit more approachable and way more affordable what the NCAA can do to better address their mental health crises on their hands, and why you should aim to make yourself anti-fragile to truly flourish in your life. Make sure you hit subscribe and leave a review wherever it is that you're tuning in because it helps more than you know. And without further ado, let's dive into it. Beautiful. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Forever Athlete Radio. Today, I'm joined by Adam and Nick. Gentlemen, how are we doing? Good, man. Nice to see you. Yeah, you too. For context, Nick and I got to work together in all of last year, and it's where I learned a lot of flow stuff. And Adam and I just met about 15 minutes ago, and I'm excited <laughs> to learn more. Curious, just right off the bat, how did you guys, quick backstory, end up where you're currently at? And whoever yeah, wants so, to go first. Well, so Adam and I have both existed, I think, in a coaching world for a while now. Adam longer than I. Adam's been a professional coach for, I don't know, decades at this point. Um, Defined by the well, rings on the top of my yeah, head. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we both kind of hooked up with an organization, which is how, of course, you and I met Corey. Um, Adam got, and I got to know each other a bit through that realized we sort of existed in similar coaching and consulting Mm -hmm. worlds, um, but came at those worlds from very, um, in some ways complimentary, but also in some ways different, uh, perspectives, which uh, made us realize pretty quickly that we'd, we'd be sort of complimentary puzzle pieces. And so once Adam moved on, um, that opened up some space for us to just reconnect and start talking collaboration. And and that's what we've been doing for the last, I don't know, six months or so at this point. Nice. One of the things I want to kind of start with exploring with you guys is this concept of anti-fragility that you have talked about and I'm familiar with, but I'm sure that might be a new term first and foremost to those listening in. Adam, do you want to define what that is and then why is it important in our life? If you've ever had the opportunity to read Nassim Tlaib's work, do so. <laughs> if you haven't, you know, pick pick up a book. One of his great books is is about anti-fragility. And it's the first time I think I've ever encountered that word, never even heard of it before. But in the most simplistic sense, the way he describes it, it's the, you know, the opposite, right? The the the, the idea is we want to go beyond robustness. We want to go beyond resiliency. And I, he tried to capture a word that really didn't exist because it, it wasn't something we talked about, particularly in academia. You know, in the work that I do in sports psychology, everything we talked about is mental toughness and resiliency. And that, I think the underlying factor there and what you're looking at is how do we bounce back from setbacks? How do we mm-hmm. bounce back from challenges? How do we absorb them? And I think when I talked, when I talked about this to my students, 
I use uh, Greek myths to explain this. And I think what you see is is the the myth of the phoenix, where you know the bird kind of goes up in flames and comes back as the ex exact same bird, right? Just as strong as it was before. So, well, that's an interesting way to be, but maybe we should be more than that. And the, so, so the myth we looked at then was, you know, the idea of the hydra, and what happens with with the hydra when you cut off the hydra's head to grow back. And the idea is, well, if that's the case, maybe we should start teaching our students and our athletes to not only be able to deal with stress and cope with stress, but to seek it out. So rather than getting better at coping with stress, let's create more capacity to bring stress into our lives and then to grow from it, to have post-traumatic growth as the goal and that mm. there's skills and tools that can be taught to help one become more anti-fragile. Safely, I, I might add. I don't know that we're we're certainly cutting not off heads and burning up birds, but yeah, or, or seeking out trauma. But but you know, when the bad stuff happens, well, how can we help young people do more than just, as Adam very well said, you know, just kind of come back as the same? How can we help them grow from those adverse experiences? Yeah, what does that process look like? Because I mean, trauma in its own right has a timeline to it. I think, right? Like, have you seen people willing? I guess this could be case by case with people that you've worked with varying from the elite athlete to uh, everyone else in between. Have you seen like a timeline that is in place? That's like, okay, right after traumatic event, whatever that might be, they're ready to go and learn and try to grow from that. Or is it, I, I'm, I guess, looking for your guys' expertise here and what you've just seen trending wise there. Well, I'll just, I mean, let's talk a little bit about, I think, the different types of lenses we might apply to this, the different mm -hmm. approaches that I think Adam and I are both bringing to the equation here. But then I'd like Adam to to jump in and maybe answer your question more directly. I think, listen, we have to acknowledge that when we're trying to help young athletes, and that's what Adam and I are doing together, right? The anti-fragile athlete is about helping young athletes feel better, perform better, navigate the hard stuff that life throws at you, become your best self, right? So that involves oftentimes being prepared to work with a young person who maybe has gone through trauma. Um, but it also involves, I think, building that positive and helping them buffer by having a lot of the key indicators in life that lead to well-being, satisfaction, high performance, things of that nature, right? So our approach is really to work from both ends of that spectrum in a really dynamic way. And support with curriculum and group coaching and one-on-one -on -one coaching. But um, for the the trauma question specifically, I'll throw it over to Adam. So I, I don't want to get caught up in trauma. I think what we should be talking about here um, is mental health, and mm -hmm. and we can you know we we obviously we could run through some of these statistics, which you know suffice to say we are in a you know a, a real crisis in this country in terms of access, in terms of you know in terms of what what one lives the experience is like coming out of COVID. Um, and I think particularly in high performance sport, you know, and that's where our focus is right now, but clearly this extends far beyond sport. Sport for us is merely, it's not the destination, it's the vehicle, right, to communicate and meet people where they are. But this goes, you know, this is for the student, this is for the executive, you know, this is for the parent. So these skills, are we can decontextualize them, but for our purpose, we are staying, you know, with sport because largely this is our focus right now and where we exist. Um I think we we have to define what mental health is. So rather than looking at trauma, let, let's understand. I think we get caught up in um, not operationally defining it in a way that really allows us to 
to make real and meaningful change. And what I mean mm. by that is, particularly in our world, high performance is often equated with mental health. And I'm sure Nick will attest to this when you deal in the professional world of sport. And you would know too, Corey, in, as a collegiate athlete, it's often the case that the high performing athlete, they're not thriving. In fact, they may come off a of peak performance and completely crash. So that's absolutely not the case. And I think on the flip side of that, there's just because you have an absence of a clinical diagnosis, you're not meeting diagnostic criteria, right? It doesn't mean you're thriving or you're mentally healthy either. So it's not so simplistic, right? It doesn't mean you're free from struggling because you haven't had these symptoms for a certain amount of time or you're missing one of that one mm. item on that checklist. Um, but what we do know is that if you're mentally healthy, it's very clearly, it creates the opportunity in the space that you will not only have more optimal experience and peak experience, but also be able to thrive and flourish. So it creates that foundational opportunity to thrive, right? And Nick, you, you could go on to how, how we define mental health, because I think um, I think we really spent some time trying to work through this so we can create action around it. Yeah. And I mean, generally what we're talking about, we'll pull in a, a couple different like predominant scientific models that include the indicators of a good life, right? So generally when these things are in place and relatively high, relatively stable levels, and I'm saying relatively and generally, right? Yeah. That's what we're going to talk about is thriving, flourishing, high levels of well-being, life satisfaction, those sorts of things. That doesn't mean all day, every day. It doesn't mean that there aren't going to be periods where those things aren't in place or under threat. That's part of living. That's part of striving, right? But we really want to take this holistic approach that it's in part feeling good and it's in part performing optimally or living optimally. So taking care of body and mind, physiologically, mentally, those sorts of things, and taking a 360 holistic approach to helping young people understand really actionable, tangible ways to do that so that they can get these indicators in place, right? And ultimately at least have that foundation to be their best selves as they go forward. Mm. Now, does that mean there can't be mental illness alongside that? No, it does not, right? You can actually, there's different models. Corey Keyes comes to mind where you can be flourishing while still suffering from a mm -hmm. mental illness. Mm -hmm. And so we want to be, we want to paint kind of with a broad brush here, be highly inclusive of people who are struggling with a whole bunch of things, but also just the, the regular high level athlete who needs to navigate kind of the daily pressures of being elite at anything, right? Yeah. What have you guys seen to, if you could boil it down to maybe one or just two things, which I know is a, a challenge, right? <laughs> We're trying to paint with a broad brush, but asking you to get a little bit gritty here with it. One to two things that you've seen, especially in that elite athlete population, that has just been a, a huge turning point for them to switch to the, maybe this more flourishing model. So I'll, I'll, I mean, I want Adam to jump in here, but it, we could briefly talk about our our framework. So we kind of joke that you know it's the the new AAA, if you will. Um, so this is awareness, affect, and automatic behaviors. Okay, so it's not one or two things, but to try mm -hmm. to directly answer your question, if you can help a young person simply become more aware, right, not only of their thoughts, but of their affect. So what they're thinking, what their self-talk is like, what their bodily sensations are signaling to them and using those as sort of data by which they might make decisions or shift behaviors, right? If you can just help anyone, but especially a young athlete, start to understand those two components, 
it opens up a whole new world because all of a sudden they can start to manage emotions a little differently. Um, mm -hmm. Not necessarily control, but just understand and navigate, right? And regulate a little bit. That can give them access to different types of motivation. It can help them access discipline and willpower. It can help them be resilient and endure and navigate the bad, but ultimately help them grow from the bad, have more of that anti-fragility. And then the third A is automatic behavior. So it, it's somewhat tied to awareness. Just knowing that a lot of our days we are on autopilot, mm -hmm. right? And catching those moments a little bit more frequently and living with a little bit more intentionality. And that that breaks down into a whole bunch of different skills, as you're well aware. But that's kind of our, our AAA framework that we've been using at this point. I'll, I'll add a little bit to that, Nick, in that I, you know, again, taking that kind of high level approach, but I, I think mental health is a dynamic experience, right? And it's a lived experience. And, and ultimately there are certain things one needs to do, right? To experience their life fully. That, that means they have to develop um, emotional and psychological flexibility, right? So that they can embrace life's challenges no matter what comes along, right? This whole idea of stoicism has grown so big, but there's there's something to some of this ancient wisdom, right? That's supported by current science. And to do do so in evidence-based ways, right? Not just talking about intellectually about it. These are action-based skills. Um, I think one has to have the, accept, the, the, the ability to not only accept their emotions and a full range of them, but identify them effectively, have a language to speak about them, have the courage and create a space to speak even about these things can, can incur more change than anything else we do, right? And that's that's not just for us as coaches, but that's for everyone involved within that system of high performance sport and competition. I think, and, and another factor that's important here is having, having the psycho, psychosocial skills to identify their values, why they're playing, right? Why they're doing what they're doing and to fully commit to that and to take action, courageous action, even though they're dealing with fears, even they're dealing with doubts, even they're dealing with obstacles and injuries, they could still move forward and create a, a support system around this. It's almost like an ecosystem of support yeah. or scaffolding where everyone's involved. We, cre we create these high performance cultures with very low support. And I, I jokingly say, pun intended, that we want to turn this on its head, right? We want to turn th this, this whole idea of psychological sport on its head because we want high challenge, but we also want high support. And that's where we come in. And it could be proactive. It doesn't have to be reactive, waiting to someone for someone to break. Why push them to that point or drop out of sport or both, right? So, so let's keep them in there and get, get what we can out of sport. And what it's supposed to provide is basically the opportunity to thrive and grow and test ourselves in challenging environments. And this is a really, I think, key insight here, Corey, because when you often hear well-being, right, or mm -hmm. performance, you kind of keep those almost in isolated buckets as if like performance is just about grinding it out at all times, right? And it should be miserable at all times. And well-being is the opposite. It should just be happy and fluffy, go lucky all the time. Well, much of what Adam's saying here is like a big component of well-being or flourishing is being able to have the richness of life that comes with unpleasantness and the growth that mm. can come on the back end, right? So we actually believe these ideas are really complementary and synergistic if done in the right way. So this isn't just the, the regular old kind of well-being or, you know, mental performance training that you might see. This is something I think uniquely different. A hundred percent. I mean, you guys hit on a lot there that definitely resonates with me and that idea of proactive mental health. And Adam there, as you were saying, you know, this idea that 
if we have a stronger support system around us that have bought in on the challenge that we're all seeking, we can actually go and face greater challenges. We are a little bit more risk adverse. We understand that we can face those fears to your point, Nick, and we feel like the people behind us have our back. And I think that is hugely, hugely beneficial and often overlooked. What's that saying of like seeking out those hard choices on our terms makes for an easier life? I think I'm mm-hmm. probably messing that quote up a little bit to some extent, but that's really what I'm hearing in your guys is, but you're almost taking a step further in your approach as well, being like, well, you actually don't have to make these hard choices by yourself. There's a support system around you, and this is what's going to help you actually make even harder choices and continue to grow your skill set. My question really becomes, because you are shifting this ecosystem on its head, there comes with change, a little bit of resistance, right? How are you all seeing and creating that buy-in of these high achievers, these peak performers who are so used to doing it a certain way or have only seen it done a certain way and what you're extending an invite to, while it obviously is yielding some positive results, I'm sure there's initial resistance to that buy-in. What has that process been like for the two of you? Well, I'll just say that some of that's going to depend on the on the audience, right? Mm-hmm. And so part of the reason why Adam and I, who do a variety of different things, are really spending a lot of time and attention on sport, and Adam says this well, it's a Trojan horse, right? You're really trying to get these skills and this knowledge, right, and this content um, into the athlete's hands through something that they're already aligned with, that they already love, that's already self-concordant, right? Adam talked about their values. And I think when you do that, there's an there's an immediate and early willingness to allow some of that stuff in, right? Um, Adam, you want to jump in here at all? You always say it better than I do. No. <laughs> I, re, resistance is inevitable, right? It, I, and as you know, part part of my life is I, I direct uh, mental skills um, for a major league baseball team, right? Inevitably, the stigma that goes along with this, it, it, it's never right now we're, we're making we're making great headway. But there are cultural issues. That, I mean, there are so many factors. There's, the idea is, well, what can we do? Well, the way I look at it is, number one, we're going to give scientifically backed right? Psycho, biopsychosocial interventions, right? The science doesn't lie, right? This is not some folksy way of motivational speaking or something like this is real science. And I always say, it's like, this is psychophysiology, right? We could argue about gravity too, but let me see you drop off the top you know, of this building and then we'll have a conversation when you land. It's like, you could believe, this is not this is not about religion. It's not about belief, right? It's science. Now you could choose to adapt it or not, right? And then, then that's where the discussion comes in. And the way I look at it, it's a co-creative experience. If anybody sees me doing applied sports psychology, recognizes that I'm doing it wrong because ultimately it's making connections, creating social bridges, building trust with our athletes, which is foundational. Once we can get there, then they may be able to take on some of these risks to do things differently. Mm. For us to come in and say, we know better than you, we're going to meet with further resistance. It's like, no, it's a, it's a co-creative experience where we're here to create the opportunity if you should be interested to change. Right. And that's that I'm glad Adam brought that up because I think that's where the the work we're doing is going to be really important because it's really bespoke, right? It's mm-hmm. customized to different franchises, sports programs, you know, businesses, organizations in the athletic world. 
that need something for their athletes or need something for their coaches or need something for their parents or frankly all three since we're talking about this ecosystem um but they don't necessarily know what and they don't necessarily know how right we understand mm -hmm. these different audience audiences because Adam and I have worked in this field across a range of age groups and sports for so long. It's just another good example, right? I work with a division one program right now where there, there isn't a ton of resistance. It's like, give us videos, tell us how, and we'll do it. Cause they're already in school learning, grow mm -hmm. themselves, develop sort of mode, right? You're going to have other audiences like Adam just mentioned that need something totally different, which is why we were taking sort of this bespoke approach to meet uh, groups and clubs and organizations where they're at. Yeah. I think there's a fine line and delicate balance between like an invitation to exploring this mm -hmm. and being like, but like you need this. <laughs> it's it's trying to find that delicate balance. I like the Trojan horse yep. example. That's why, you know, the physical component for me is still present in a lot of the training and work that I get to do with the clients that I work with. Because I almost like I guarantee most people that start working with me, they'll come to me to start running a marathon or mm -hmm. training for something in particular. And then when we actually sit down and talk, it's like, oh, actually, you need to be working on all of these mental and emotional <laughs> underlying things to help you run the marathon and also show up in these other areas. So I resonate a lot with the model that you guys are approaching here. The, the three top skills that I tell my, you know, either you know, students that I've mentored through the years when it comes to doing this work, number one's listen. Number two is listen. <laughs> number three is listen because everybody's different. Right. Mm -hmm. And every culture is different and every sporting environment is different. And to think we have the answers when we walk into a situation is foolish. Right. You, you really have to understand the needs of the individual and the needs of the team and the administrators and the coaches to really create a bespoke experience that suits them. Right. And solves for their problem. Right. We know the science. I mean, we're, we're I, I like to think between, you know, our, our, our complementary backgrounds um, and years of experience, we know the science, but it's the artful application of the science that depends upon meaningful listening and understanding our clients, which makes a difference. That's, that's a core value for us with anti-fragile athlete as well. Um, you know, Adam and I are, we know what we know. We also know what we don't know, right. And where we're, where we've come from, um, culturally, racially, whatever it might be. And we are actively working to try to make sure that whatever program team group of athletes we work with has a representative coaching staff available to support it and work with various consultants who can help us understand some of the dynamics of how an ecosystem, right, might kind of interplay with some of these skills and techniques that we are uh, are trying to share with folks. Yeah. Uh, let me add one one point one point to this, and I think this is a big part of our mission. And Nick, you could you could you know fill in the blanks here, but ultimately, the issue I have with so much of sports psychology and, a, and positive psychology is. Um, largely the people who get it are of a, so a social, a, a, right. a certain socioeconomic strata, ethnicity, uh, race. And, and what we want to do is basically democratize it, right? Mm -hmm. Like clearly no one or a, a, a vast majority of people, regardless of where they come, aren't thriving right now as they could or should be, particularly within school systems. And, and, and we feel like it, it should not be something that only the rich can afford. 
Mm. So, so if we could do this in such a way that we can, we could, we, we could introduce it and honor all societies, right, with this, and and create these conversations across those environments, particularly urban environments that we work in. Like, I think that that will be where the our most impact is going to lie, right? Yeah, yeah we work professional teams and D one. That's great and that's important, but the real change in the seismic shift has to happen at that grassroots level with kids that don't have access to this. They should, like everyone should. This, this is foundation, like this is foundational material that people should understand and have access to. Yep. Well, I feel like what you guys are talking about is one of those many things where people on the internet are being like, why didn't they teach us this in school? Like, mm-hmm. This would have been yeah. so helpful. How are you guys going about making it more accessible and making it so that people that might not necessarily traditionally have access to these styles of resources because I mean, that's my gripe with the coaching industry in general, and that that word has all different kind of t- connotations to it too. Mm-hmm. It is reserved primarily for people that, I mean, can't afford it. The people that need the help the most often can't afford it, and then mm-hmm. vice versa. So I'd be curious to know how are you guys extending that invitation to making these resources readily available at scale. Well, right now it's still early enough stages that we're doing a lot of testing, right? Mm. So in some cases, what we do is if there's a particular small group that we think provides, you know, a pretty good representative sample of a population we'd like to be able to get this to, we might even donate the curriculum to them and just ask that we get feedback, right? Um, We take a little bit of data. We try to assess the efficacy of the program itself. In other cases, you know, we'll provide really high-end, you know, bespoke services to, like I said, um, entire franchises, programs, businesses, whatever it might be. And in that case, then we start to develop a bit of a sliding scale and, you know, think of it as Robin Hood without the stealing, right? For those who can afford to provide this for their athletes, great. That would ultimately enable us to provide it to folks who cannot afford it, you know, Mm. at a lesser charge or free of charge and those sorts of things. So, trying to figure out ways to, you know, create win-win-wins for everyone involved and everyone we could potentially positively impact through this. I like and, that. Yeah. I, I think that's why important we need to continue to have discussions with with other with organizations that are interested in making a social impact like we are and and collaborate, you know, and, and create some partnerships. Yeah. You know, it, it speaks to a much, you know, it we have a I don't, you know, somewhere around the $225 billion mental health system that's largely failing. And you see problems with access, you know, across demographics, you know, socioeconomic status, geographic locations, right? The the idea is like, we're not going to fix that. (laughs) There are so many problems in sport, like that needs to be fixed, but we're not, but, but we could also, we could do our part by trying to empower people with education, psychoeducation in ways and, and to do it in such a way that we, we ultimately um, can affect the most people that need it, right? In such a way that they simply aren't getting it. Yeah. You know, once you get to the point where you need, when you get diagnosed, the, 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 the idea that you're going to get this, I would say the care that you need is, is so far from the reality of what people are experiencing right now. You could talk to parents, even, even wealthy parents that we have a, where, where I live. It's like, you could be waiting months to see a therapist, months you could be in a lineup of people in literally if your child is suicidal in the emergency room and not have a bed. I mean, it is weird at a frightening state. So we're trying to start before that happens. 
Mm. Let's let's give people the tools and the skills that create some anti-fragility. It's not going to be the answer. We know that, but it might be one part of the solution before these greater things and societal issues get fixed. Yeah. And you know, obviously we're we're passionate about this. This is, I mean, yeah. yeah. So so tangibly, Corey, what that looks like is at a basic level, customized, created curriculum for, you know, wh whoever it is that we're serving, right? Mm -hmm. And generally, so say with a, you know, we generally are serving the range 15 to 29, kind of that, you know, elite high school, high level, collegiate, maybe even young professional athlete. And in some cases, that's going to look like short videos that are no longer than five minutes apiece. We're going to have to shrink those down. In other cases, for particular athletes, we want to get our curriculum put out in Spanish um, to serve certain populations. We, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that we uh, plan to do and grow. But right now, the simple way to say it is differentiate, right? Um, mm -hmm. Adjust the curriculum and the delivery and the context and the language based on the needs of whoever it is that we're trying to serve. Yeah. Do you guys, have you seen a shift in the past few years since like, Adam, what you just hit on, hit close to home? Like For me personally, when I was at Delaware, there was a moment in time my junior year where I had an event happen and I was like, I need to talk to a therapist. Like I, mm -hmm. I need to go seek out and get some help. I wasn't doing the proactive things and practices that I know mm -hmm. now really work. And I remember very distinctively calling up the uh, mental health facility or um, part of campus, whatever it's called, blanket on that right now. And they were like, okay, great. We can see you in like three weeks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. But like, I want to talk, like, I need to talk to someone now. Like it's not a three week from now thing. And it took me like stepping up and really being kind of forcing my way into it. And they're like, all right, there's something available this afternoon. Like, come, come on in. And I was like, okay, great. But I, I recognize what I was able and fortunate enough to get the help. That's not the norm across the board. Do you guys notice that's over for me now, seven, eight years ago, since that experience, is there a shift where that's gotten any better in that time? Or is it still very much? That's kind of the blanket across the board. Want to speak the stat, there, Nick? Yeah, well, the stats I'm, I want you to give kind of the stat we generally lead with. You just brought up really the impetus for Adam and I starting this work, Corey, and Adam will tell you in a second. The, the one stat I'll point out is that my understanding is over half of Division One athletes um, are experiencing some sort of mental illness, right? That number is an increase, <laughs> um, certainly, yeah. right, in terms of uh, – uh, percentage and I think to a certain level intensity as well but you know Adam I think has an even more staggering one that we often share yeah I I, I mean I'm not looking at stats right now but basically in the last surveys that I, that I saw something something towards a 20 to 30 percent of uh of I want to say was it 14 to 18 year olds uh reported thinking about you know had suicidal thoughts in the last year um you know i, I you know this, let's talk to a one point in instance where nick and i said we need to do something is was it last march and april where we saw five yeah. nc athletes commit suicide right yep. ironic successfully yep. they're the ones yep. that actually you know so-called succeeded in in committing suicide um and then we said okay these, these are people like you of privilege who have access within a university system and they are still getting to a point where the best decision they can make is to end their life now there's something fundamentally 
problematic about this. And we could look through, you know, it's a complex system and whether it's, you know, the tyranny of social media and coming out of the pandemic and relationships and expectations and, you know, pressurized level sport, right? At every, starting at seven with, with club mm. and travel sport, you know, it's not any one thing. And sure, there's genetic predisposition genetic predispositions and environment that goes along with that. But like there is something fundamentally disconcerting and it's not getting better because mental skills practitioners are overwhelmed. Just mm. look what it takes. I mean, look what it takes to become even a master's level practitioner. It's a three-year program, probably about 50 to $60,000 of three years of full-time right, training. And in New Jersey, 4,500 hours before you become licensed to practice. Do the math. You're not making, they're making a living after your four-year college degree for seven, maybe eight years. Who, who can afford to do that? So what do we get? We get mostly, right, white, upper middle class people that can afford to do this. And we don't look anything like the majority of the people, or at least a good portion of people who need these services. Mm. Right? And it's also ends up being very general biased where I don't know the stat, but it's primarily female. So for males, it's even, you know, can be even more of an issue. Right, because there's very few males, and for in terms of black male therapists, I, I mean, the numbers are abysmal. Yeah, you know, so you know, so so there are so many factors that go into this. Um, obviously, the problem is massive. Yeah, yeah, it'll take, it'll take a really massive collaborative effort as well, right? Like mm -hmm. Adam and I are trying to really help lead a charge on some level here, but you know, everything he just pointed out. We want to bring different experts and consultants into the fold that are coming from diverse perspectives and experiences and make sure that they're in the videos and they're a part of the coaching process, right? And really try to create something that is um, widely accessible and fun to access without being diluted scientifically, which is which is a challenge, right? But a meaningful challenge. A hundred percent. I mean, everyone has a voice now at the internet. With that comes... Definitely yes. unqualified profession yeah. professionals, quote unquote, uh, coming out there and sharing some things. I mean, I think what you guys just opened up to is something I'm very passionate about with the Forever Athlete mission. You know, one of the biggest things I say is our past, similar to what you guys are saying around anti-fragility, post-traumatic growth, all of this stuff. When you're an athlete, that can be a launching pad to your next season. But if we can introduce this concept of this identity of holistic well-being a lot of what you all are, are talking about earlier on that transition might just be a little bit yeah. easier it might be a little bit more proactive right rather than i the original <laughs> slogan i wanted to come up with was like well when the ncaa kicks you out the door we like help you land on your feet i was like i don't know if that's the right branding but <laughs> kind of more or less the messaging that is put out there and even how i think we've seen across the board even like a university like Stanford, right? Katie Meyer, I believe was her name mm -hmm. was the mm -hmm. name of the young lady on the soccer team that took her life earlier this year. Even as a university as prestigious as Stanford, the quote unquote best thing that we've seen readily available afterwards was, okay, well, we're going to make a professional available on call for the rest of the team, whatever support you need, go to her. It's like, okay, great. But that's the same response that we've seen from right. uh, the past 10 plus years it's always after the fact well mm -hmm. now someone's available go talk to them how do you guys think and i guess it is through curriculum are there any other opportunities or any other ways that you think the ncaa as a whole as an organization can get more proactive 
around this conversation. So that, I mean, I think we can all agree five is way too many. And I'm sure there's even more numbers than that, right? The, this past year alone, is there a way that we can get more proactive as a whole? And what does that get to look like? Man, uh, yeah, let me let me offer something here. By the way, I did look up those stats because now you had me thinking. I want to throw this out there. This is from the CDC. This was 18 from 2018, 2019. About seven 100,000 children aged 10 to 19 uh, died by suicide. Um, among high school students, 2019, more than one in three, right? So that's almost 37%, let's say, right? Reported feelings, sad, hopelessness, and nearly one in five seriously considered committing suicide. Right. And among adolescents, 12 to 17, one in five um, experienced a major depressive episode, right? Which is about 21%. And these are self reported issues. So you can assume that we are severely underestimating mm -hmm. these right. numbers, right? So, so when when you look at it that way, I think that creates an urgency around this, right? So, so I just wanted to throw that in there, but go, go ahead, Nick. Well, to me, it's, you know, it's not only about access, which Adam brought up, but it's about engagement, right? How do you help a young person who is, is shy about it, nervous about it, just flat out private, right? Um, Adam mentioned the stigma. How do you get them the tools that they need before they know they need it? in a way that is highly engaging so that they're being pulled in rather than pushed in, right? And I think that's traditionally why a lot of efforts often fail, just existing in education for a long time, sports for a long time. It's often the parent or the coach or the teacher or whatever, almost kind of forcing or nudging, which don't get me wrong, a lot of good comes from that. A lot of good comes from that. But I think you're also missing out on the opportunity to pull young people into things that are authentically engaging and have them, we've mentioned Trojan horse, right? Kind of sneak in these skills that they're going to need at some point, probably throughout their athletic career, but they 100% are going to need as a part of their life, right? Including the clients you work with, Corey, as they transition away from athletics, right? Into living the, the next chapter, whatever it might be. Right. So to me, it's, you know, what, whether that means, you know, apps, gamified learning, social media, like we're exploring all sorts of different routes right now to ask real key questions about how to engage people so that this stuff can be consumed, like Adam has said a couple of times in a way that is highly preventative, right? You know, I think there's another in terms of education, not just the athletes of of coaches and understanding and expand, yeah. expanding what the role is of a coach in that environment, not just mm. the sport coach, but particularly given my background and your background, the SNC coach, you know, and, and I jokingly and this little folksy wisdom, but I jokingly give presentations to SNC coaches, which is where I did a lot of my dissertation, my research, um, is that we tend to focus on musculoskeletal issues, right? I and mean, that's where our focus is. So we could say, okay, nervous system, but that's what we're training, right? But I was like, there's three other bones you should be aware of as an SNC coach, right? I say, number one, you should be aware of the wishbone, right? So when you're talking to your, to your athletes, that you should understand their goals and where they are, you know, and, and try to support them in those goals and try to understand them, help them to clarify what they want out of the sport and what they're doing. Two, I think you have to look for their backbone, which I mean, that doesn't mean, you know, grind it out. Let's grit, you know, grit your teeth and bear it. It's, creating a situation where you allow a safe enough space that they feel comfortable speaking to you and say, you know what, 
things aren't going that well. And that may be simply just asking, how are you doing today? How are you doing? And then 10 times out of 10, they're going to say, I feel great. Everything's great. And that one time say, you know what, coach, you have a minute. But you create that foundation, that opening of trust, right? And that social connection. And lastly, I say, look at their funny bone. <laughs> Try to find it, right? And realize that like, you know, you are an, you are a human being who plays sports. You are not only an athlete. Don't let that define you. And so take some of that pressure off. And coaches have a unique ability to do that. And I don't think, number one, they don't, maybe, maybe they don't know how, right? Mm. Some may do it intuitively because, but these are skills that can be trained. It's not rocket science. And there's a way to go about doing this in an evidence-based way that create a situation where it's a healthy, like I said before, high challenge high support environment. So that's, that's, you know, another way for us, I think, to help change that system. I like it. Yeah. I mean, I, what I'm hearing there, Adam, as you're speaking is this, the coach is giving the permission for that space to be created, to invite these athletes in the people that they're working with to have those kind of conversations. I'd little personal story before we like wrap things here for context i had what's known as av node reentry. it was undiagnosed we didn't know what it was when i was going through it when i was getting recruited going into college and part of that whole process so i was going to all these cardiologists they were telling me don't swim don't swim just stop doing the thing that you love and life will be okay and i was like you don't get it i'm an athlete this is like who i am that's like asking me to just stop living like i'm going to figure out a way to do it and why I went to Delaware, the big reason was when I sat down in the recruiting office with head coach at the time, John Heyman, he was the only coach that I felt comfortable enough because he created the space for me to fully disclose what I was going through. I was like, hey, I'm passing out at practice once a month. I have no idea why. I'm going to cardiologists at GW, <laughs> they're telling me to stop swimming. They want to put me on medication that would probably impact my performance. I'm kind of lost, but this is where I'm at. And he just looked at me and said, Corey, well, We'll figure this out together, but we want you here. I was like, done. Okay. Sign, give me the NIL. Like I'm, mm -hmm. I'm signing this letter of intent and we're going here and making it happen. But I didn't realize at 17, you know, how impactful just that exchange is and that opportunity that so many people miss out on because that space isn't created. So they're constantly holding this unknown, unseen burden around. And unfortunately, we're the ones that feel that the most. The people around us have no idea oftentimes. I mean, how many times do we hear that in when it comes around mental health struggles, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, I had no idea. Everything seemed fine. We just talked the other day. So I think that is, if there's one big takeaway for the listener, uh, create that space, invite other people to do the same so that you have that space as well. And we can kind of build each other up in that process. But Corey, go ahead, Nick. Well, I'd say that's, I mean, an important element too of, I think, what we want to carry into the work that we do, because it's it's easy in this day and age to be, oh, here's the next online course and online training and online mm -hmm. curriculum, and we're going to scale and we're going to, you know, but there's, there's a trade-off where when you lose that human touch and that human connection, you lose, and you lose coaching, right, or you don't have coaching present. I think you lose out on the opportunity for some of those insights and, and different metrics of growth. So, you know, that's, I, I think we intend to be a high touch, you know, service and organization to create those spaces for as many young people as possible and as many coaches as possible who, who want to be on the other end of that very unique mm. experience.
So another observation there, Corey, is that you you also have enough, you had enough self-awareness at 17 to recognize that that was a place for you, mm-hmm. right? And that, that speaks lows to your parents and your, your parenting, right? And, well, I, and that gets you to the next one, right? That, that <laughs> exactly. Was, yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, this is, this is an important element. And this is another part of what we're trying to do here is teaching parents, particularly in this system of high, highly competitive sport, where that academy, that club didn't starting so early that you need to be an advocate for your child on and off the field. And they have to understand what that appropriate developmental athletic pathway looks like that puts a child's interest first not the organization's bottom line mm-hmm. and empower the child to speak up and create these decisions, you know, that are in their best interest and understand like what is appropriate and what's not. And you know what, not to be afraid to speak up when they see a coach and these are very few, this is a minority that like is, is inappropriate. And I don't mean like inappropriate in, in the way that it's like abuse, but inappropriate that it's accepted within a high performance culture that is not evidence-based. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of these old school coaching methodologies, you know, and the idea is how can we create a more rational mind as a parent when you're in this largely irrational system that you just hop on this treadmill and it's nonstop go. The numbers are, it's a $19 billion industry, the youth sport industry. It's absurd. And it's only growing exponentially, right? So how do I bring some rationale? And that's what we'd like to do is help teach some of this to the parents is because it's ultimately it starts at home. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think you know, it's safe to say we could continue this conversation forever and ever. I'm looking forward to part two, three, four down the road. Um, but I want to be respectful of both of you guys' time. And I just want to first off acknowledge the work that you guys are doing. It's close to home very clearly for both of you. And it's impacting a lot of people already. So I just want to acknowledge you both for the way that you continue to show up and the work that you're doing in this world. Where can those listening in find and connect more with the work that you are doing something struck a chord with them, reach out and connect. Yeah, just go to the the antifragileathlete.com. You can contact us through that website, um, get in touch about potential, you know, services and opportunities for your club or program or franchise, whatever it might be. That is all for this week, folks. I appreciate you being here. And until next week, flow on, my friends.